Good morning to you all. Let's bow our heads as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we have a very small part of your Word before us today, and yet it calls us to a constant remembrance through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, minute by minute and day by day. I pray that that remembrance would be held before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will be looking at verse 9. So please, can you turn there now? Now, somewhere along the line, you may well have heard an act ask, what is my motivation? And wondered why they all seem to say it, because it's often presented as a kind of a joke. Well, although it is true that a great actor does have some special inborn skills, they also work hard at perfecting their craft. They study at drama school and they think through their characters. As in any sphere of life, various techniques have been developed to make on-stage or on-screen characters more believable. And one of these is known as method acting, or just as the method. It's a range of training and rehearsal techniques that seek to encourage genuinely expressive performances through identifying with understanding and experiencing a character's inner motivation and emotions. Hence, an actor will ask their director, what's my motivation here? In other words, how do you want this character portrayed in the scene? And then the actor will try to remember a similar circumstance in their own lives that will help them to find the right facial expressions and posture and words to make an act look like real life. Well, that's sort of what we're talking about today with the important difference that there is no falsehood in it at all. Scripture frequently calls us to conform to a particular standard and that call can be uncomfortable because doing it might seem difficult or even dangerous. And so we ask, what is my motivation? Well, verse 9 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians will give us an answer. So let's read it. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Well, first off, we can't look at this verse on its own, just hanging there in space. We have to start with our good friend, therefore. It always means that the following writings cannot be understood without taking the previous ones into account. So, let's do that. Let's go right back to the beginning of the chapter in this case. It is, after all, some months since we went through them. But we can't ignore that therefore. Starting with verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Well, Paul is using this picture here of different types of dwelling to remind the believer that even if their physical body dies, here uh, described as a tent to point to its temporary nature, God has prepared, and note it's already there, a building, a permanent and eternal place to live in in heaven. Verse 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Here we have this powerful picture of how the atmosphere of sin that we endure in our tents here on earth causes our spirits to groan with longing for the peace of that steady and permanent building in heaven. Verse 3. 
If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Well, in heaven, we're not only going to enjoy spiritual completion, but physical as well, because the Lord is going to clothe our spirits with a new and perfect body, one that doesn't know disease or the effects of aging. It will never leave us naked. And that's a marvelous gift my knees are already saying. Verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. If you look at this verse, it pulls the first three verses together. The tempt, the temporary place we live in, the distress we suffer in it because of the burden of sin, the yearning that we have for the new and perfect body that God has prepared for us, and the final and permanent end to death that will come with it. Verse 5. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Well, that all sounds very exciting, but is this just the promise of a snake oil salesman at the fair? No, Paul says. This blessing and this promise is of God himself. Theos is the Greek that's used here, and it means the supreme divinity. And that supreme divinity has not only prepared our new bodies, but he is preparing us to inhabit them. Also, this promise isn't like a carrot dangling in front of a donkey and it's forever out of reach. No, we've already been given something very substantial to nourish us. God's Holy Spirit has been given to us to be with us in our tents here on earth as a guarantee of what is to come. Verse 6. So, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. What does that knowledge and guarantee together give us? It gives us confidence, a continuous and permanent consequence, sorry, confidence that no matter what, God has everything under control. Next Sunday, Kalthane, Gerard and I, we're going away for a week to the South Island on our motorcycles. After church. After church. Is that exciting? Absolutely. But there's also a bit of a scary part because we don't know exactly how it's going to work out. The route has been planned meticulously. At least it's been scribbled on a piece of paper by Colthane. I know that my bike will be as prepared as I can make it. It's going to have new tires, fresh oil and filter. All the bolts will be checked to see that they're tight. The windscreen will be clean. All of us have even put in extra trips for um, dirt roads for training. But what if there's an unexpected storm, torrential rain and howling wind? What if one of us falls off or a bike's engine explodes in the middle of nowhere? There's always that little scary bit of uncertainty that goes along with the excitement, isn't there? Well, here in verse 6, Paul is telling us that there is no reason for that sort of apprehension because there's absolutely no uncertainty, no reason to fear. God will not change our mind, his mind over our salvation or forget who we are so that some are overlooked in the final accounting. No. We are always confident because alive or dead, the Lord is always with us and always has things under control. When we are alive, we have the Holy Spirit. When we are dead, we are in the presence of God forever in a new body specially built and ready for us. Verse 7. For we walk by faith, 
not by sight. Now there's a word here in this verse that's often missed because we get so excited by the faith not sight bit. It's walk. We must walk by faith, not sight. It's a reminder that there is a necessary consequence and companion to faith. It is action. Our faith is intended to be shown and taken along with us wherever we go, not closeted secretly somewhere out of sight where nobody except us knows of its existence. And the way the sentence is constructed in the Greek tells us that this walking by faith must be continuous. It says that although we will not know what is going to happen next, we must press on regardless, trusting in God who has covered all eventualities, both in the present and in the future. Verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Back in verse 6, we are given the grounds for our utter confidence in the Lord whilst on earth. And here, the same confidence is confirmed after we die. So our confidence, both as we walk and as we look forward, are both complete. But added to those is the sensation that awaits us <laughs> is wonderfully glorious. So that if we had the choice, well, we'd rather be there than here. And that vision of heaven is what we work for, what we endure for, what we long for, as Paul does here. So we can summarize these verses like this. Life might be extraordinarily hard for us now so that we literally groan with the pain of it. But there's already a place for us guaranteed in heaven, eternal, where we will never groan again, rather exult in the Lord's presence. So we must walk by faith, walk confidently even though we might encounter yet more and more groaning along the pathway because we are always held tight in the Lord's hand. And that should stir our hearts, give us a vision to empower shaky legs along the way. And that is exactly the introduction that is intended for this word, therefore, in verse 9. That understanding, that stirring of our hearts, is our motivation to press forward. What do we press forward to? Let's read verse 9 again. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Now I've already said something about the necessity to keep walking as a physical sign of our, of our faith, but there are different kinds of walk, aren't there? You'll have heard the term storming off. Well, that's obviously an angry sort of walk. How about skipping along? You've seen me skipping. We immediately know that joy is in the air, or there's a fool around. Here's a good one. Perambulate. And that means to walk around in order to inspect. Well, that kind of brings up the picture of a person moseying around. No particular hurry at all. Yep. Here in verse 9, we have a consequent direction for the walk of faith. It is consequent because our motivation to walk in that particular way is the appropriate consequence of the wonderful gifts that have been given to us by God, as described in those last eight verses. We ought to make it our habit to have a walk that pleases God. Now it's time for some Greek again. In the New King James Version we have this phrase, make it our aim. 
Your translation might actually use the word ambition. I'm not sure that I really like that because the word ambition often has negative connotations today. But that's not the case here. The Greek word is philotomiomai, a combination of two words meaning friend and honor. So literally it means to be a friend of honor. Its use speaks of such an urgent need to get things done that you will give you all to make it so. And the present tense that used tells us that Paul's highest goal was always to conduct himself in a way that pleased his Lord and Master. And it ought to be ours too. Robert Gramacchi, a distinguished American professor of Bible and Greek, wrote this. When a redeemed sinner perceives all that God has done for him and all that he is in Christ, then he will live and serve out of love for honor. He will want to honor his God and the name of Christ that he bears. Is there anything at all on earth that should be more motivating or shape our behavior more perfectly than our eternal salvation? Yes, our family is very important. So are our friends and our jobs. But it's very easy to get sidetracked. I want to give you an unusual example of that. I met someone recently who had a number of piercings, studs or earrings in some unusual places like their lip and nose. Because I'm a little bit rude, I asked them if the lip ring was a constant irritation. And their reply was that if they took it out, they'd miss it rather than notice it being there. And then they went on to say that their ultimate piercing goal was to enlarge the holes in their ears so that they could fit in a 10 millimeter ear stretcher. Now, if you don't know what that is, here's a picture of one. Okay? And I'd say from the size of it, it's obvious that you can't go straight from piercing one to the 10 millimeter hole in one go. Instead, you have to put larger and larger stretches in the ear until you've got the size that you want, and there are special kits that you can buy to help with the process. Now I want to say I don't have anything critical to say about the piercings or where they are. That's none of my business and I really don't mind what other people do. But something I did find really difficult to understand was that the person concerned said that they loved the idea of the discipline and commitment needed to achieve that 10 millimeter goal. Like it was a really important thing. Now that was a problem for me because something so trivial shouldn't become so important. There are more pressing goals in life than big holes in your ears. Now, we can all shake our heads at this, but I'd be surprised if someone, anyone here hasn't fallen into that trap in some way already. I know for my part that things like motorsport and work have been traps like that for me in years past. Unfortunately, God has taken a back seat to them, and that's plainly wrong. Yes, it's very thrilling to drive a rally car sideways, likewise to work and gain status and power in a business. But really, what will even the highest achievements in those areas gain us when we die? They might give us some false confidence now, <laughs> but nothing then. Only God's amazing grace delivered to us through the blood of Jesus will give anyone total confidence in both spheres. 
Let's talk about confidence some more. It's really a very, very valuable thing. If we're honest, we'd all have to confess that its lack is a constant thorn in our sides. Now, I know that I've spoken before about a thing called imposter syndrome. And it's a psychological problem where a person doubts their skills or their talents. And they have this constant inner fear of being exposed as a fraud. Despite what you can see on the outside, their success, those people still do not believe that they deserve their success or luck. And they think that they are deceiving others because they're not really as clever or able as they seem to be. And whilst in its fullest sense, imposter syndrome is a type of mental illness that can be treated, I think that we all feel like that at some time or another. And we would all love to have some more confidence. Maybe in a Christian sense, the need might be that we'd like to be completely confident that we're saved. So that requires a piercing question. Thank you, Colin, for ruining my carefully crafted moment. And <laughs> that, it, that, that was an unintentional pun. <laughs> okay. What would you be prepared to pay to always have total confidence in every circumstance? Not just when you're alive, but after you've died. What would you pay? What would it be worth to you? How hard would you save? How diligently would you train? I wonder. It would be worth a great deal of effort, wouldn't it? So, if someone gave you that benefit for free, like, poof, total and complete confidence, especially when you've done the very opposite of anything to deserve it, you'd never saved or trained or anything, how would you respond to that person. How? Well, that's exactly the situation we have here, isn't it? In verses 1 to 8, as we've seen, the Lord has graciously given believers exactly that free gift. We can be absolutely certain that He looks after us during our lives. He's even given us His Holy Spirit, His very person living inside us. And then, when we die, we get a new house, a new body forever. And we get to live with God forever without all the pain and suffering and imposter syndrome and whatever troubles you. But what if you're not a believer? You may still value and crave the same confidence that we're talking about here. But I need to be very clear about where it comes from. Because even the utmost of mental or physical efforts will never ever achieve its award. They cannot be earned or deserved in any way. There is only one way to obtain it, and that is to bow before holy God in repentance. Tell him you are sorry for your sins and you will try not to do them again. Tell him that you accept Jesus as your Lord now and forever. Not money or power or anything, for none of them will last will help you here. And he will receive you with gladness into his family. And then you will know the joy of his grace and confidence. 
So now we know that God really does give his children the reality of complete confidence, and we also recognize that it is an extremely valuable gift. What remains is to answer. How do we reply? What do we have to do in real life to realize Paul's instruction to make it a constant aim to please the Lord? What are some of the things that we can actually do to answer that question? <laughs> there are heaps. One commentary I saw had over 20 suggestions, which is obviously too much for a sermon, so I borrowed eight. I'll start with something we've already discussed, the problem of letting worldly things tangle us up so that we get more attention, they get more attention than our relationship with God. 2 Timothy 2.4 No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Well, the Lord has given us all a job of some sort. It will not please him if we go off and become distracted by something we think is more important. And I think it's worth mentioning this may not always be completely obvious. It's very possible that said exciting or rewarding work might also be godly work, but it might not be the particular thing we were meant to do. So it's good to be careful. Secondly, we are pleasing to the Lord when we do walk by faith. Hebrews 11, 5-6 By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. But before he was taken he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. A walk of faith must be a walk of obedience. What we do must be consistent with what we say, and both must be consistent with God's rules for life. Faith is often considered to be blind and unreasoning. But it is not. We may not know the outcome of the situation, but we do know how to enter it. And we also know from this text and many others that whatever the outcome we can have the confidence that God will look after us, no matter how that thing works out. Thirdly, we are pleasing to God when we use our abilities and possessions to help others. Hebrews 13.16 But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. <laughs> well, to read this shouldn't be a surprise, because doing good... And sharing is just an echo of God's own nature. He gives us good things. He does good things for us. The most profound of which is obviously the literal giving of himself to atone for our sins. And he has shared his marvelous creation with us so freely. Fourthly, we are pleasing to God when we are careful to say what pleases him rather than what pleases humans. First Thess Thessalonians but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And once again, we see this link between faith and action because we know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our hearts are truly given over to God, then we will pray so and we will say so. Five, we are pleasing to God when we offer Him broken and contrite hearts. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. 
for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. There are seasons in our lives when we sin and sin and sin again, so much so that it becomes hard for us to even think about talking to God at all. In such spaces, we might furiously think about what good behavior or good deeds we might do that would put us back in God's good graces. Kind of sacrifices, in other words. But this isn't what Christ died for. He died so that we can always go to our Father and confess in repentance. That's how we restore our bond. And that is what God desires from us above all. When you stop to think about it, that is a most extraordinary opportunity. Sixth, we are pleasing to God when we praise His name. As we've done earlier, Psalm 69, 30-31. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. Seven, we are pleasing to God when we seek His will. Walk worthily and bear His fruit. Colossians 1, 9-10 For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And finally for today, eighth, we are pleasing to God when we have the proper fear of Him and depend only on His mercy. Psalm 147, 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. Now, of course, there are plenty more scriptures scattered through our Bibles that will tell us what to do to please God. However, we mustn't imagine that if we found them all, learn them off by heart, and then were scrupulous about doing them, that we would get some special favor from the Lord. No. Following rules for the sake of following rules would make us just like the Pharisees, and Jesus had some pretty rude things to say about them. Whilst the common theme of doing does run through all these scriptures about pleasing God, you will find that it never stands alone. Anything that we can do that will genuinely please God always begins with our right relationship with Him. And we've learned something important about that today. As Paul has pointed out to us in the preceding verses to verse 9, the Lord has graciously, graciously given to those who trust in Jesus the cause for enormous confidence. We can be absolutely certain that he looks after us here, now, in our earthly tents. We have his Holy Spirit, his very person living inside us. And then when we die, we get a new house, a new body, forever. And we get to live with him, forever. God has been extremely gracious and generous towards us. Although our behavior towards him definitely does not warrant any of that. So, how do we reply? We make it our aim, whether present or absent, 
to be well-pleasing to him. We aim to please him not because we are told to, but because our heart cries that we must give him something back. We must. We have no choice but to always aim to please God simply because of the love and gratitude that overflows from inside us for his many gifts. He has rescued us. He has given himself for us. He has prepared an eternal home for us. What else can we do? What else? Let us pray. Oh Lord, we really do not have the right words to thank you for all that you have done for us. But words are not enough on their own, no matter how clever or long they are. It's our actions that, that are important. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit working in us, we would find the words and we would find the actions to be pleasing to you. For this is what you wholly deserve. In Jesus' name we pray.